Let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 12, please. This week in coming to John chapter 12, we we arrive at a very dramatic change of pace in the gospel of John. Chapters 1 through 11 in their entirety cover three years of Jesus' life. And then right at the end of chapter 11, we have this scene where after Lazarus is raised from the dead, he starts telling people about Jesus. They don't like that. And so the chief priests and the teachers of the law now plot to kill Jesus very directly. And their premise is the next time we see him, we're going to arrest him and we're going to see him crucified. And yet when we get to chapter 12, something different takes place because from chapter 12 through to the end of chapter 19, we don't have three years. We have now just one week taking place, the final week of Jesus' life, his final discourses, the final moments, and then his passion and his suffering in our place. It's very much like, you know when you watch an action movie and you just race through the film, but then when the important things happen, everything goes into slow motion and they go, Adrian, you know, that type of thing. It just Everything slows down and you know this is really important. This is, a, this is a key moment. That's what's happening here in this Gospel of John. Everything is now slowed right down because John wants us to take time to understand what happened in the last week of Jesus' life. The final week of Jesus' existence on earth then begins with a wonderful scene of extravagant devotion, which is my title for this morning's message, Extravagant Devotion, borrowed off none other than C.J. Mahaney, but sometimes titles so stick in your brain, you can't think of anything after hearing that one. So extravagant devotion it is. And this is the moment where Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Let's read together, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. John says, Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this, appoint- this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor, you always have them with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this most important text, Lord, I'm humbled that you would give me the privilege and assignment of telling people of such an incredible moment in history. Lord, would you give me grace? A Lord, where my deficiencies become evident, would your Holy Spirit take these words and implant them into people's hearts so that our lives may be quickened and changed by the example of Mary? Father, open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word. Or would our lives be changed this day and for every day future because of her example? In Jesus' name.
Amen. There are times when illustrations are found in the most strangest of places. And this opening illustration is actually such a thing. It's an article written by Steve Russian. It comes from Sports Illustrated magazine. And it was actually very old. It was actually recorded some years ago during the Clinton administration. And yet I want to open with it because I think what he says is just so important for us as we understand this passage. Mr. Russian writes as follows. He says, when President Clinton professed, professed, quote, profound regret last Friday over last year's accident in which 20 people died when a U.S. military plane severed the cable of an Italian ski lift, he echoed another recent pronouncement in February when he said he was, quote, profoundly saddened by a People magazine puff piece on his daughter. If two events, one tragic and one trivial, invoke the same rhetoric of grief, is either state meaningful? And then he writes as follows, I think very insightfully. He says, we live in an age of profound baloney. I like the way he doesn't hang about. He says, certain words have been turned upside down and had all their meaning shaken from their pockets. In sports, there have been enough historic moments, enough epic games, enough best players of all time to render those phrases completely empty. Superlatives, he writes, even when appropriate, are bees that sting once and then die. You know, I think he's right. And please don't misunderstand. I don't think in any way he's seeking to critique President Clinton. It's not what he's trying to do. And as you understand the story, you realize that's not what he's trying to have a go at. But what he is trying to say is critiquing the use of our words, how we can overuse words, how we can trivialize words, how we can really degrade words by using them in sentences where really they don't fit at all. And the word profound, I think, is one such word. It's one of those words that can be used so many times that it starts to empty itself from meaning. But what I need you to understand this morning is that when it comes to this text and this scene here in John chapter 12, the word profound is the only word in its purest form that really fits to explain what is taking place here. Because this is a truly profound moment. This is a truly historical moment. There are a few stories that are recorded in John and Matthew and Mark, but this is one of them. This is one of them that features in all three Gospels, given its very clear importance. In Mark chapter 14, then, Jesus himself, having been anointed by Mary, responds to her and responds to the disciples by explaining that she has done a beautiful thing to me. That was the divine assessment of what took place here. Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he goes on in Mark 14, verse 9, to give her an incredible promise. He says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus doesn't promise that to anybody else. Never anywhere else promises to an individual that you know what, what you've done will be imbibed in scripture for all eternity. He doesn't promise to any other individual on the planet that what you have done, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, you'll be remembered. You'll be inscribed in my Gospels. And yet to her, he does, because it is so profound what she does. And what we learn then through this text is just one simple thing. That extravagant devotion 
is the transforming effect of the gospel. You want to know what the transforming effect of the gospel is? What it takes place when an individual truly becomes converted and starts to live for Jesus? I'll tell you what it is. It is extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion is the transforming effect of the gospel. See, the backdrop to this passage, I just think, is is indeed a dramatic one. John 11, verse 45 through 57, concludes with a disturbing description of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They are now, with great clarity, seeking to plot to kill Jesus. The next time they see him, they want to arrest him, and they want to have him killed, and they want to have him crucified. They're so cross about what is taking place, particularly now with Lazarus spreading the rumor that he's been resurrected from the dead, that they want Jesus killed. Actually, we're going to find out that they want Lazarus killed as well so that they can quench what is taking place here. And yet in John chapter 12, as it begins, standing in stark contrast to the previous verses, we don't encounter a group of people that want to kill Jesus. We encounter a group of people that truly love Jesus, that think the world of him. And John then takes us to a party. (laughs) It's a party scene that is taking place here, a party that John invites us to attend a party that John gives us front row seats for, and a party where, in effect, we're going to attend this morning. And we're going to attend so that we can understand that extravagant devotion is the transforming effect of the gospel. So here's the first thing. First, one of two points today. Firstly, I want us to attend the party. I want us to begin by attending this party. And what a unique party this is. What a unique gathering is taking place. It's made up of people who across the board truly love Jesus, think the world of Jesus, are grateful for Jesus, saved from Judas Iscariot, who's about to betray him. Everybody else in the room is really jazzed with Jesus. And I want you to picture the scene. I want you to imagine you're here. Because this text really comes alive when you start to realize what John says about it and Mark says about it and Matthew says about it. It starts to come alive as to what's taking place. Let me introduce you then to the host, because the host is Simon the leper. Now, something distinct about Simon the leper is this. We can safely assume that Simon the leper is a leper no more. All right, It would be against the law for a leper to in any way relate to individuals. They would be quarantined. So if he's hosting a party in his home, thing is, he's clearly been healed of his leprosy. And so the host for this event is one jazzed guy. He used to have death by inches but now has been incredibly healed by the Savior. And so he wants to host a party for the Savior. Simon the leper retains his name, but he does not retain his condition. Two Simon the lepers left then is Martha, the quintessential servant. This event, this party, I mean, if I was going to run a party, I'd want like Martha serving the drinks because Martha just wants to serve all night. That's all she wants to do. And that's what we see her doing again at this party. So we've, we have the host, Simon the leper. We then have Martha starting to go around with little nibbles for everybody and drinks for everybody. And then we come across no other than Lazarus. Remember the guy who died a few weeks ago? Well, he, he's back and he's at a party. I mean, if I was at this party, I'd be making way to Lazarus. Okay, I'm going to talk to Lazarus. I'd be interested in talking to Simon the leper. That would be intriguing. Like, you know, what did it feel like to be healed? in your body of leprosy. That's good. That's like an 8 out of 10. But the 10 out of 10 is Lazarus. I'm going to make a beeline for Lazarus because let's be honest, it's not often you would get to speak to a guy who's died. I mean, this is unique. And so there he is, sitting with Jesus, reclining with Jesus. I'd be making a beeline for Lazarus. And I was thinking this week, I'd probably want to communicate a few things to Lazarus. Like, like Lazarus, 
feel like to die? You know, I'd want to know about, how, how did that go for you? Was it just like you fall asleep and then you're in the heavenly realms? And you know what, Lazarus? What does it feel like to know that you're going to die again? And there would be the types of things you think, this is intriguing for me. I mean, if, if it was a real bummer the first time, then second time, would, I don't know, would be worse. And Lazarus, what's heaven like? Because you've been. So seeing that we're at a party together, you've got some time. So um, what, what's it like? Tell me about it. What did you see? Who did you meet? Oh, Lazarus, Lazarus, who told you that you were going back? Okay, so you're in the heavenly realms. Who broke the news that um, you're on your way back to earth? And then what did it feel like to come back into your body again? I'd be making a beeline for Lazarus. And I think it would be an entertaining discussion. Learning about death and learning about heaven and learning about what he went through. To his left are then all the disciples. All 12 of them seem to be present. Everybody's got a prank. Everybody's got a joke. I mean, these are 12 young guys, okay? They're they're late teens. They're probably between 18 and 21. So when people think, you know what, church planters need to be about 50, most of them in the early century were about 22, okay? That was when they really received the Spirit of God. They went out. They're very, very young men. So they're they're a lively bunch, as always. And they're at a party. So they're letting their hair down. So they're, they're they're in the midst. They're getting on with the business. But most importantly, Jesus is there. He's not the host. Simon the leper is the host. But he is indeed the star of the party. And so as you look around this room of 15 through 20 people, the star of the show is indeed Jesus. And this is one festive occasion. Greeted by Simon the leper, who is a leper no more. We enter the room. We're given drinks by Martha. We start to chat to Lazarus. And Jesus and the disciples are right there. Now you would expect, I think, as this story unfolds, for there to be no tension in this evening at all, wouldn't you? You would expect this to be a tension-free evening. There are no Pharisees there. There's no teacher of the law there. You would expect just one wonderful evening of giving thanks to the Savior for who he is and all he's done and all he will do. And yet suddenly, a woman... Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, comes into the room and what she then proceeds to do changes the whole mood of the party. Everybody's having their private conversations. Martha's giving out the drinks. And then Mary comes in and she takes an expensive ointment. It would probably be worth in today's money about $25,000. She breaks it and she starts to anoint the Savior's head with the perfume. And then she gets down on her knees and goes to, her, to his feet and starts to rub the ointment into his feet. And she lets down her hair, something that in this tradition they would only do for their husband. But she lets down her hair as a mark of her gratitude for the Savior, of her humility before the Savior, her confidence in the Savior, and starts to rub the ointment into his feet with her hair. Well, you can imagine that any conversation that had been taking place in that room has now stopped. All eyes are on Jesus and all eyes are on Mary. There is simply no ignoring her at all. The perfume is now filling the entire house with the smell. Everybody's eyes are just fixed. That in the middle of a party, imagine it, at the middle of a party, 
a lady walks in, shatters an expensive perfume and then starts to anoint this guy's head and this guy's feet, rubbing it in with her hair. Kent Hughes says of this moment, he says it was an intensely fervent expression of devotion, as fervent as found anywhere in all of sacred scripture. I think he's right. As this perfume began to fill the room, it was indeed impossible to ignore her display of public and passionate extravagant devotion for the Savior and to the Savior. Now, the disciples then come into the scene. All eyes are fixed on Mary, and you would assume that the disciples would be praising her, giving thanks for her. But the disciples... And their youth are knuckleheads, as always. Okay, every time we see them, you just think, what are you doing? And this is another one of those scenes, as you study it in the Gospels, where the disciples equal knuckleheads. They just don't get it. They do not get what Mary is doing in any shape or form. And so they are indignant with her. They scold her. They basically start to slag her off, saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. What a waste of money. We could have given that money to the poor. And Judas, jumping at this is the general conversation of the disciples, starts to speak on all of their behalf and says exactly that out loud to the Savior. What a waste. What a waste of that money. We could have given it to the poor. And then we hear one other voice. As the mood of the party completely changes, as it goes from joviality to now aggression towards this woman, we hear one voice rise above all the rest, a voice like no other, the Saviour's voice speaking on Mary's behalf, saying, leave her alone. Leave her alone. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. And what she has done will be told everywhere the gospel is preached in all the world. You see, the disciples just don't get it. They don't understand in any shape or form what Mary is doing. But the Savior completely gets it. He completely understands what Mary is doing. The Savior completely understands that in anticipation of his impending death and in response to his impending death, Mary is anointing him as an act of extravagant devotion. The disciples can't see that, but the Savior knows it completely. And that is why he says to her, what you do is a beautiful thing to me. And that is why he says to her, what you do, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, something that is being answered right now in Sydney through my voice, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, they will hear of you. He memorialized what she did for all eternity to reveal to people the transforming effect of the gospel. Extravagant devotion. The only true response to the Savior's death, from her perspective, that was still pending. It had been prophetic recognition. She already understood what he was going to do. And so her extravagant devotion came early because she loved him and she worshipped him and she was affectionate towards him, amazed at what he was about to do. So do you really think $25,000 of perfume was a big deal to her in this moment? She would give it all twice over because he was her king and he was her saviour. C.J. Mahaney, 
says, what then is the transforming effect of the gospel? The transforming effect of the gospel is extravagant devotion for the Savior. And Mary's example of extravagant devotion to the Savior is in this moment memorialized by him. This, in effect, is the difference the gospel makes. And in this transformation, Mary was to be an example to the church universal. She was there as an example of extravagant devotion and the transforming effect of the gospel. Matthew Henry then, in writing of this account, says that he, the Savior, recommended this piece of heroic piety, listen, to the applause of the church in all the ages. I think he's right. It is inscribed in Scripture to the applause of the church through all the ages so that we may look on as people in wonder and, in the right sense, applaud Mary, be gathering around Mary and realize that her devotion, her experience of extravagant devotion before the Savior is something to be applauded and commended. This morning, in contemplating this act, that is exactly what we have the privilege of doing, applauding what she has done. But that's not all we get to do. We don't just have the privilege to applaud. We also, I believe, have the privilege to apply. See, this story isn't just there for our applause. I believe this story is there for application as well. She's there inscribed in Scripture, not just for our applause. She's there inscribed in Scripture so that as Christians and as people of God, we may look at Mary and ask the question, Does my extravagant devotion look like that? Does the transforming effect of the gospel have have that effect on my life? So we shouldn't just applaud. We should also apply. So that's my second and final point today, applying the party. And I just have three simple points of application then, which we're going to spend some time on until we finish today in relation to the demonstration of extravagant devotion that is present in such a profound way in this story. And it is present in a profound way, is it not? This is an incredible scene. So number one, applying the party. Number one, extravagant devotion is an evidence of genuine conversion. You want to know what a mark of genuine conversion is? It's not complicated. Extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion is an evidence of genuine conversion. If someone has been genuinely converted, extravagant devotion, listen, extravagant devotion in some form or other, maybe in differing forms, maybe in differing degrees, but extravagant devotion in some form for an individual who has been converted will be present. It will be there and it will be noticeable. So you've got to remember that all the Gospels are written with evangelistic intent, right? They're all there to try and tell us about Jesus and to try and promote the gospel to us. Think then about Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus encounters a guy, he encounters a teacher of the law, and as he talks to him, after conversation, he says to this guy, you know what, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You can take that one or two ways, right? That's both encouraging and real discouraging. It's encouraging because I'm not far from the kingdom of God. It's really discouraging I'm not a part of the kingdom of God then. It's both an encouragement 
and a warning. This man that he encountered was near, but he was not in. He was near, but he was not there yet. He was on a journey, but he was not yet at the destination. He was near and not in. But then just two chapters later in Mark chapter 14, and in John chapter 12, we see a picture of somebody who is totally in. A picture of somebody who is without any doubt, without any doubt at all, in. A picture of someone who exudes the transforming effect of the gospel. A picture of someone who is evidencing through their life in this moment their extravagant devotion, the extravagant devotion which is proof of their genuine conversion. A picture of someone who not only we are to applaud but a picture of someone we are to look at and then evaluate soberly and humbly before the Savior. Has my profession of faith resulted in that type of extravagant devotion? Because if it hasn't, is my provocation of faith actually genuine? Actually real at all? See, folks, I don't want to in any way unsettle anybody that is genuinely converted. I'm a pastor. I don't do that type of thing. It's not my heart to try and unsettle people that are genuinely converted, who genuinely know the Lord as their Lord and Savior. I don't want you to be unsettled in any shape or form. In fact, quite the other. I think if there is in your heart any evidence of extravagant devotion before the Lord, that should be a true sign to you that you are saved. Because without that extravagant devotion... The only way that extravagant devotion goes there is through the regeneration effect of being a Christian. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's there. So if you've ever experienced extravagant devotion to the Savior, that is an evidence that you are a Christian. So I don't want you to be unsettled in any shape or form. But if you are here today and in all reality, you have never experienced in any form extravagant devotion. Your whole life, has never been marked by extravagant devotion. And so consistently, you are unresponsive in worship. You look around and you just think, what do these guys get that I don't get? Because they're doing things that I don't even want to do. You're unaffected by truth. You don't look forward to preaching on a Sunday morning. You just think, you know what? I hope he's real short this week because I've got stuff to do. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't grip your soul. You're unaware of your sin. And because you're unaware of your sin, you are, in effect, unmoved by the Savior's finished work. And so you know, because it's preached so often, that it's all about Christ and Him crucified, but that doesn't quicken your heart. You're called to that, and in reality, you've, you've always been called to that. Folks, if that is you, if that describes you, then in love, I do want you to be unsettled. I don't want anybody in this local church to go through life with false assurance. What a horrific moment it would be when us as a local church get into the heavenly realms and we look around and go, oh, where, where is such and such or where are they? Oh, I, they weren't really converted. They just didn't like to say it. I don't want that. I want each part of Sovereign Grace Church for us to know fully and for you to know fully in your own heart. I'm in. I'm in. This is who I am. This is part of my life. And so for you folks, if you have never experienced in any sense extravagant devotion in any form, I do want you to be unsettled because in all reality, you are very much unlike Mary. 
And as biblically defined, you're very much like Mary because you're unconverted. And I want to unsettle you. I want to unsettle you so that you, by God's grace, may flee to the cross. I want to unsettle you so that you may flee to the cross of grace, turn from your sins, and then cry out to God for his mercy and his grace. I want you to be unsettled so that in this moment you realize, I am not a Christian, I am not generally converted, but I can right now run to the cross of grace and be unsettled as I flee to him, and then in that moment, know what Dave's on about, because now I start to feel it as I'm aware of who I am before the Lord and what he's done for me. No one's turning this on, but what I feel is extravagant devotion. What I feel is thank you. What I feel is devotion. Folks, if that is you, flee to the cross. Run to Jesus and put your faith in him as Lord and Savior. And do it wholeheartedly. Don't just take him as Savior. Take him as king. That is true salvation. When you realize who you are before him and what he's done for you and now who you can be in Christ and in him alone. Mary is not turning this on to perform before the Savior, hoping that she might get into heaven as a result. No. She is already knowing what it is to know that heaven will be our home. That's why she's doing it, because she's so amazed. It's not a work. It's a response. So flee to the cross. Put your faith in him and know then this extravagant devotion because extravagant devotion is an evidence of genuine conversion. That's not all though. Number two, extravagant devotion is the Lord's intended ongoing experience for all the converted. Extravagant devotion is the Lord's intended ongoing experience for all who are converted. So extravagant devotion is no doubt an evidence of genuine conversion. It's just a fact, and that's real clear. But we would be remiss then if we were to think of extravagant devotion as just a one-off event. All right? So it's a really sad moment if as Christians you talk to somebody and they say, you know what, I know what you were talking about, 27th of September, 1978. I had that. I mean, I haven't got it anymore, but I had that. Right about that. That's a sad moment. Jesus has called us to walk with him every day. And as we walk with him every day, each day realizing who I am before him and who he is before me and how he has saved me and come after me and sustains me and loves me and holds me, this should be an experience not just of a one-off. I believe this should be an experience of being a Christian. This should be ongoing. This should be continuous. And I think if we to think of anything else, we're ripping the Savior off. I don't think that's his heart at all. I think that's one of the reasons why he ensures that it's in Scripture so that we may evaluate ourselves not only as unbelievers before it, but so that we may evaluate ourselves as believers before it and start to see, I was once like Mary, but I'm not anymore. And why is that? And where's it gone? See, I want you to consider for a moment if indeed you recognize yourself in the following illustration. Listen well. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of summer days, and instead she broke her own heart. She watched her children run to the playground equipment as another car drove into the parking lot. The new car ground to a quick stop. A young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leapt out of the driving seat 
and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near an adjoining lake. The imagination of the mother began to race. Who could this attractive young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an over-busy husband? A lunch date with a best friend? Or a tryst between secret lovers? The young mother, determined to remain on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car. No one else came immediately, and the mother soon grew preoccupied with her children and forgot to watch the young woman. And when she did finally glance again at the young woman, what the mother saw made her own heart hurt. The woman was reading a Bible. The person she had leapt from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. And the mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had the same enthusiasm. Oh, once the excitement of her relationship with the Lord had overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation had burned warm and bright, but now, but now the fervor had gone. Faith had become a dreary duty. God had become a detached, frowning bystander. And something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. She did not know what it was. But she did know that she was no longer one who had skipped to meet him. She had lost something wonderful. And she wept there in the park for her loss. Folks, here's the question I want you to consider. Each and every one of us in the room this morning. Are you still skipping? Are you still skipping to meet him? Is this still a profound daily reality of your life where you skip to meet the Savior that we profess to love with all our hearts? Are you, am I, still skipping? See, for all of us that are converted, which is the vast majority in the room, no doubt, For all of us, the reality is we all have times when we're not skipping, don't we? We all have times, varying points in our lives, where we can relate to this woman. That we all have times when we can relate to her loss. When we hear that illustration and we know, I'm I'm like that. I remember those times. Getting up to be with the Lord, man, I was excited. But not anymore. We can all relate at different times, if we're honest, I think, where we resemble those who criticize Mary more than we resemble Mary. See, if you go back to the scene of John 12 for a moment, consider what should have happened. As she is breaking the jar of ointment over the Savior's head and then anointing his feet with the perfume, what should have happened? tell you what should have happened. What should have happened is the disciples should have not only applauded, they should have been then in the queue to say, Mary, can I have a turn? Mary, Mary, this is the one that healed me of my leprosy. Can I have a go? Mary, a few weeks ago I was dead, but now I'm alive because of this guy. 
I said, Mary, can, can I take some of that? And can I anoint his head with it? Mary, we were just fishing. We're just kids doing nothing. But then this guy turns up and says, follow me. And he's changed our lives over these years. He has completely revolutionized our lives. We can see that he's the king. Mary, can I take some of that anointment and rub it into his feet too? That's what should have happened. But it isn't what happened. They scold her with indignation, thinking, what a waste. Mary, what a waste. I think if we're honest, we can all relate at different times to being more like the disciples than Mary, can't we? We can look around the room and think, what is this church's problem? They are so infused about the gospel. It can't really be real. I mean, you know, there must be things going on in their lives. And we get a group and people open up and you think, oh, I don't think they're really opening up. I, I know this is as good as it's really making out. And we're the disciples in those moments. We're so provoked by what we're seeing. We stand there in indignation before others. And yet we're called to be Mary. And yet we all go through times when we're not Mary. And when you realize that, when you realize that in some ways you've lost your first love, when you realize that your love for the Savior has indeed gone cold and extravagant devotion was indeed a thing of the past, I think for a genuine Christian, it's a painful moment, isn't it? It's a sad moment. It's a difficult moment. But church, I want to encourage you this morning. It is not a moment without hope. It is a hope-filled moment. And that takes me to my third and final point. So it's such an important point. Listen, extravagant devotion can be cultivated. Extravagant devotion can indeed and should be cultivated. In closing then, I want us to be pastored by Mary. You see, there is another story in the scriptures that help us see how Mary has positioned herself before the Lord, which did indeed play a part in cultivating this extravagant devotion. And so turn with me please to Luke chapter 10. And I want us to close here. See, I think sometimes we can look at Mary and that can seem an impossible endeavor. You can look at her and be intimidated by her and think, how on earth can anybody be like that? But realize Mary's just like the rest of us. She's not a pastor. She's not what we perceive sometimes to be a special layer of people. She's just a person. She's just like everybody in this room, including myself. And yet she does something in her life which helps to play a part in cultivating this extravagant devotion. Let's look at it. Luke 10, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
My friends, if you are wondering how to cultivate extravagant devotion before the Lord, if you are considering in your life, I've gone so cold, where do I go from here? I think sometimes we just overcomplicate Christianity so much and think we have to do so many things to try and muster up this extravagant devotion. And yet the Savior of the world says, no, just one thing is necessary. You've got to sit at my feet. Just one thing is necessary, Martha. And she's chosen the good portion. She has chosen it. What was the good portion? Sitting at the Savior's feet. Is it surprising to us then in any way that she would be the one in the room that just a matter of months later is bursting in with anointment before the Lord? Because she knows him. She's got a relationship with him. She walks with him every day. She's amazed by his presence. She's amazed at his teaching. She sits with him in her life, listens to him, soaks it in like a sponge. And what is erupting then in her heart is extravagant devotion before the Lord. As she listens to his words and realizes who she is and who really he is in light of her. Folks, I want to encourage you then. If you have gone cold to the Savior, choose the good portion. And sit at his feet. You know, I speak to people a lot, pastorally, that just say, you know, I just feel my relationship with the Lord is going so cold at the moment and not getting on too well. Here's my first question always. How's your sitting at the feet of Jesus going? Here's what I hear 99% of the time. Well, I'm just very busy at the moment. I've got a lot on. I'm serving in the church and I'm really working hard at work and I'm I'm overwhelmed with stuff. You know what? then you're a Martha. If you want to cultivate extravagant devotion like Mary, you must live like Mary. You've got to sit at his feet. And church, I want to encourage you, sit at the Savior's feet. Find time daily, daily to spend time sitting at the Savior's feet in prayer, sitting at the Savior's feet in worship, allowing the truth of good theological words to minister to your hearts and sit at the Savior's feet in His Word. Allow Him to teach you. When we read the Word, we are indeed listening to Him, that which Mary did herself. We're listening to His words, listening to His teaching and allowing it to inform our lives. See, folks, I think sometimes, particularly in the West, we want to feel deeply but we don't want to think deeply. We want to feel real deeply, but we don't want to sow deeply. We want to feel incredibly deeply, but we want God to respond to us like McDonald's. We want it here. We want it now because we're busy. He refuses to do that because this is a relationship. If you want to feel deeply, you must think deeply. If you want to respond deeply in extravagant devotion, you must sow deeply. There's nothing magical or crazy charismatic about this. It's called Christianity. Walking with the Savior. Walking with Him in our lives and sitting at His feet. So if you have gone cold, find time to sit at His feet again. And here's what you can anticipate. When you sit at His feet again, He will warm you within no time at all. He will draw near to you as you draw near to him. He will approach you and chase you down afresh with his love and his mercy and his grace because that is what he's like. And you know what you'll then feel? Extravagant devotion. 
It's not a work. It's a response to sitting at his feet. My friends, extravagant devotion is the transforming effect of the gospel. If you have never experienced it, then I want to encourage you, flee to the cross. Run wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ and take him as your Lord and Savior. If you have never experienced what I'm on about, then you must run to him. There is no work you can ever achieve so that you will feel extravagant devotion. The only way of salvation is to flee to the cross and put your faith in him. Salvation is indeed by works, but not your works. It's the work of the Savior. Your works count for nothing. So flee to the cross. Flee to what he's done for you. And extravagant devotion will indeed start to cultivate in your heart. But if you are a Christian and you've gone cold, even today and tomorrow and Tuesday, head back to the feet of the Savior. And extravagant devotion, I think, is what will await you there. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I I thank you for your clarity of your word. I thank you for the way you address us in your word. Lord, I thank you for Mary. I thank you for her example of an individual who has been profoundly affected by the transforming effect of the gospel and responds then in extravagant devotion. Father, I pray that every one of us in this room would extravagant devotion as we sit at your feet be our theme. Saviour, it's scandalous that we even get to go near you. It's scandalous that you came down from the heavenly realms where you spent time with the Father and the Spirit in perfect unity and then you clothed yourself with flesh and came after us. It's scandalous then that we get to draw near you at all. Lord, with the ongoing theme of Sovereign Grace Church, collectively and individually, be one of extravagant devotion. Because you died in our place. From our perspective, your death was not impending. It has happened. And so, Lord, like Luther, would we live then as if the cross happened for us only yesterday?